Trooper Help for the Two One Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Today, Monday, August thirteenth, Fangraphs Audio makes its triumphant return, or mostly triumphant return, with guest managing editor Dave Cameron. In what follows, Dave Cameron, as per usual, analyzes all baseball. Uh, specifically, we discuss the saber and scouting seminar that took place on the campus of Boston University a week or so ago now, in which seminar Dave Cameron was a participant. We also discussed the Tampa Bay Rays, how they've managed to lead the wildcard race in the American League while giving a plurality of at-bats to Jeff Kepinger, for example, and other players who might be rightly regarded as pieces. Additionally, I uh, asked Cameron to comment on a piece that I myself wrote concerning the best places in the United States for a prospect nerd to live. Cameron suggested to me last week that Winston-Salem, North Carolina, was in fact one of the best places for such a person to live. Is he right? The answer to that is revealed. A lot more than that is revealed, because the guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Dave Cameron, and said episode begins right now. Maybe we did. Yeah, we did. No, we had lunch last week, but we did not have a podcast. Oh yeah, we had lunch last week. Right. Yeah, that's right. We because we had talked. We talked a little bit about your, uh, about your performance, I guess, your participation in the uh, saber, um, the saber type conference. I guess saber with an e. I should specify. Saber seminar. Saber seminar, right? It, uh, on the BU campus, hosted by yeah. Dan, Dan Brooks and a friendly gentleman whose name I'm forgetting. Uh, Chuck Corb. Chuck Corb, right? Uh, and now, and you, uh, you and uh, MGL Mitchell Lichtman, I understand uh, you you participated in fist in a sort of verbal spar sparring episode episode of verbal we, sparring. We we did like the the ironic thing was I said I don't know if I'm using the word ironic uh, correctly because the notable the spar. notable thing yes the so the notable part about this was that. Uh, Chuck and Dan had asked MGL and I if we would be interested in participating in a debate at the conference, and both of us kind of demurred and said, that's not really something we would want to do, uh, and I told them I wasn't even really sure what issues MGL and I strongly disagreed upon, and I wasn't necessarily all that in favor of taking up a position just to, you know, have an entertaining debate that I didn't actually believe in. Uh, so the, the idea morphed into just a Q&A, where Mitchell and I would take questions, and stand there side by side and offer our opinions. The first question was uh, something about Fangraphs lore, and it turns out that Mitchell and I vehemently disagree on Fangraphs lore. He's not a huge fan of it. Uh, and so we had a back and forth on our respective opinions about different things, and it was all very friendly, and Mitchell liked it along very well. It wasn't, uh, there was no hostility, but we, we definitely have differing perspectives. So we gave Dan and Chuck the uh, debate they were looking for, even though we didn't want to. Right. Yeah. Now, if, um, if, if I gleaned correctly from uh, your report of it, essentially the, the, the difference you and, and Mitchell have, if you were to summarize it, is um, has to do with looking backwards versus looking forwards? To some degree, yes. So I think Mitchell holds the perspective that I think a lot of people hold, and you know, I'm, not, uh, I'm not one to say that this perspective holds no ground or no basis. I, I mean, I get where people are coming from, and I get where Mitchell's coming from, uh, I disagree with it, but I, I understand their concepts. But essentially, 
Uh, on the pitching war side of things, I don't like the basis being fifth because it leaves out specifically pitch sequencing. That's really the biggest deal is if a guy loads the bases and gets out of it with no one scoring, uh, he actually did perform that. It didn't hurt his team, except for a pitch count. He might throw fewer innings, but that's reflected in tip anyway. Um, so, Or at least reflected in war anyway. Um, so tip will harm a guy for pitching poorly, the bend-but-don't-break strategy, essentially. So guys with really high strand rates are undervalued in our pitcher war because we're doing it based on tip instead of runs allowed, uh, which undervalues guys who can leave, who, or at least who have left men on base, um, which is a t- completely valid criticism, um, and it's something that we understand that our war does not reflect accurately. My response to this, and I don't know that Mitchell is overly uh, uh, affected by my response, but at least one that I believe in, uh, is that our war, I believe, is comprehensive, uh, or is not comprehensive, but is accurate. So, uh, we understand that we're not measuring every part of pitcher war, but we're also not trying to attempt to measure parts of pitching that we know we aren't very good at measuring. Essentially, the difference between what is pitching and what is fielding, which is by far the hardest thing to separate in all of baseball, we've left that part out of pitcher war and said, hey, look, we're measuring walks, regulars, and home runs. We're completely transparent about the parts of pitching that we're measuring. And if a guy has a really high strand rate, you can start in our pitcher war and make adjustments from there that are completely logical and say, hey, look, you know, this guy has an 84% strand rate. He performed better than his fangraph pitcher war says. I can adjust upwards or downwards based on what I believe this is leaving out of the conversation. Whereas if you do it on a runs allowed basis, which is Mitchell's preferred way and how baseball reference does theirs and how a lot of people prefer it, you can't back that back out. So how much of strand rate is defense? We don't know. I mean, if you have the bases loaded and the guy hits a rocket to the center field fence and, you know, Mike Trout climbs over the wall and takes a home run away. He just saved you four runs, but you didn't actually do anything useful. And so trying to separate out fielding and strand rate, it's all very interconnected. It's all very difficult. Um, so I think in, in our sense, we look at it and say, our pitcher war measures exactly what it says it measures, and it doesn't measure any more than that. It's not comprehensive. It's not completely thorough. There are things that leave out, but at least we're uh, measuring the things we're measuring correctly. Right, right, right. So, yeah, the... Uh uh, the alternative, I guess, relative to to what we have, would be uh, to measure more things, but perhaps those are things that we don't necessarily know everything about. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think the the trade off is comprehensiveness versus accuracy. I think we could attempt to try and measure, uh, you know, the pitcher fielding split and how that affects strand rate and um, you know the things that go into run prevention that could be the pitcher, or could be the fielder, and we could guess at it. Um, and I think that, you know, I understand people who would like us to do that in an attempt to be more thorough. I guess I'm not comfortable enough with our ability to do that to say uh, that that's an area I want to go to just yet. I, um, I would rather be transparent about our lack of comprehensiveness and say yeah. this isn't the be-all, end-all, let's make adjustments from here that make sense and are logical rather than, um, you know, maybe making some assumptions that are not correct in an attempt to be more thorough. Right. Well, uh, I think we're all aware of your flaws, Dave Cameron. Uh, <laughs> they are many. Yeah, and they, they are comprehensive and thorough. They are many, right. Wait, what is this? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I forget the passage. Maybe it's in Matthew uh, where he says, uh, or maybe it's in one of the letters from Paul. He talks about uh, insults, uh, how he he he, uh, he like actively seeks out insults. They strengthen him or something like that. 
I am not familiar with the verse you're quoting. I think like we need to have like uh, some special intro music or something for like the Carson and Dave discuss the Bible. Pro- yeah, uh, right. Yeah, podcast. Yeah. That's like a part of the. You know, Jonah Carey used to have the food pick of the week. We can have like the scriptural discussion of the week. Yeah. So maybe you could like give me a heads up so I can do some research and not sound like a bumbling idiot. No, no, no. I, well, even if you did research, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it might have been one of the letters for Paul. Uh, I like that. I like it because uh, he does, discusses the the strength that he derives from insults, and um, to me, that's. Uh, I mean, that's not a bad way to go through life uh, because um, you're going to get them anyway, so you might as well turn them on their head. That's right. uh, while we're while we're speaking of uh, interesting uh, biblical scriptural things, yeah, I will share a very short anecdote, which I think I shared with you last week, but the readers may find interesting. When I was in Boston getting a cab ride back to Paul Swyden's house after the conference on Sunday, uh, the cabbie who picked me up uh, and I got into a, uh, an animated but friendly discussion on the merits of the best baseball player of all time, and because he was from Georgia, he decided to defend the honor of Ty Cobb. Uh, and, you know, I think Ty Cobb is a nice player, but is no Babe Ruth. So we had a, a quite animated 10-minute conversation about Ty Cobb versus Babe Ruth, then somehow seamlessly segued into a conversation of the five points of Calvinism. So it was perhaps the most varied and interesting discussion I've had in a cab, or will ever have in a cab. Yeah, and I will. And I, uh, my response to that, which has been my response consistently, is that I did not know Calvinism was still a thing. Um, yes, it is, it is uh, still very much a thing. But it is, yeah, it's, a re- it's still a real thing because you were like, you mentioned that, and I said, well. Well, what are the five points? And you're like, well, you know, like, I mean, the, uh, more or less the concept of predestination, right, or being a, like... Selected, yeah. Right, selected, uh, where, where you are essentially saved or not as soon as you're born. Um, uh, kind maybe, of, I mean, that's a, you know, that's not the most accurate theological description I've ever heard, but it gets the point across. Okay, right, yeah, that's what I'm using, though. But I I just thought that that was something that had had been lost to the... You know, whatever, 17th century, or you know, whenever John Calvin was flourishing. Uh, yeah, no, still, still around today and going strong. Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, uh, um, the uh, well, another thing we discussed during that brief conversation, uh, and we should say that because uh, I happen to be out there too, we met at a at a Panera in Waltham. This this was yeah. the bulk of this conversation occurred uh, at a Panera on Lexington Ave or Street in Waltham, Mass. Yeah, the, the fun thing was that the Sunday night when I realized that you might actually be around, uh, and I sent you a text, I was like, oh, I think Carson's somewhere in the Boston area, but the Boston area is quite large. And then it turned out that we were, what, three miles apart from each other? Yeah, right. And it's not even just that it's large, it's like, um, it's also trafficy. So yeah. you could be, you know, you could, like, even that three mile drive is like 20 minutes. Three mile ride is like 20 <laughs> minutes. Um, because you have to take, like, you know, the Mass Pike and, uh, right. Uh, right, but anyway, uh, another thing uh, you mentioned because I had just come from a wedding uh, where I uh, ran into an old friend, um, dear old friend who's now living uh, out, sort of uh, in D.C. and he says he really likes living in D.C. because uh, he's able to go to a lot of minor league games. I mentioned that to you, and he said, "Well, with all due respect, Carson, and which is rare for you because you rarely don't give me uh, all due respect, or perhaps you think the respect I'm due is." limited in nature. However, you said, all due respect, Winston-Salem may actually be the best place to live for that sort of thing. Yeah, the North Carolina area is 
essentially the hotbed for minor league baseball because there aren't any major league teams here. So, like, you know, in the D.C. area, you've obviously got the Nationals and the Orioles who are drawing fans, and so it's tough to put too many minor league teams around them, and that's basically true of every metropolitan area in the country that has a major league team. North Carolina is one of the largest states in the country that doesn't have a team, uh, and the Charlotte, Raleigh, uh, Greensboro, Winston-Salem areas all having, you know, significant populations and none of them having a major league team. It can be a thriving hotbed for minor league action. Right. Well, in fact, I did, uh, so I did some research because really I wanted, I wanted to, um, disprove your claim, uh, or discredit it at least, and, uh, I was unable to do so actually. Uh, so today at Knockrafts, I, uh, have posted some maps and some notes on that, and it actually turns out that along I-40 there in North Carolina, is probably the densest collection. It's not, I didn't necessarily look at um, absolute number of teams, but the, I looked at the sort of access you'd have to different levels. And you have right. uh, uh, Appalachian League, uh, yep. AAA, um, Sally League, and Carolina League. Yep. All on that 40. Yeah, and uh, until last year we had the Southern League when uh, uh, the team over in Zebulon, which is a little south of Raleigh, uh, was the AA affiliate of the Reds for a while. So oh. we actually had access to another team until they, uh, that team, the Carolina Budcats moved and it was a whole debacle and we lost access to AA, which is annoying. Yeah. So here, let me, t- let me ask if you're surprised by the results here. Uh, number, f- uh, the fifth one I found was actually the Southeast suburbs of Cleveland. Uh, yeah, not, not that surprised because what, Akron's up there and, uh, uh, the Lake County Captains, are they still a team? I think they're still a team. Yeah, they are. Yeah, right. And then right. the Mahoning Valley Scrappers, if that's right. how you so say there's it. Right, so there's a bunch of uh, teams in the Cleveland suburbs that are uh, all around there. Right, and it's actually, and it's hard, it's, it's pretty rare that you find three different leagues in one metro area. Right. Um, and so there's only really three teams in the immediate vicinity, but... They're all from different. They're all from different leagues, so you get to see all men are different players. Uh, another one, uh, fourth. I, th- you know, this is just generally. You could switch these. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, Philadelphia generally. There's no team within Philadelphia, but there are a lot of. There's actually five levels that you could visit if you're willing to drive. Right, and that's part of that is what they have. The New York Penn League is obviously in Pennsylvania, or uh-huh. parts of it are in Pennsylvania, and Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, and. Uh, Redding, right? Uh, well, Redding's a little bit further away, but, uh, Trenton, uh, Trenton is not far okay, from Philly. Double A. Right. Uh, Wilmington Blue, Ro- Blue Rocks. Oh, yes, yes. That's Carolina League, High A Carolina yep. League. Uh, right. Sally League team over in, uh, Lakewood, which is like Eastern New Jersey. Yeah, I know when I think South Atlantic, I think New Jersey. Precisely. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then, uh, Triple A with Lehigh Valley. Right. Um, the south suburbs of Boston, actually. Um, not only because yeah. you have access to to the Fisher Cats, which are the AA affiliate of the Blue Jays um, in Manchester, New Hampshire, and then Lowell, which is short season for the Red Sox, and then Pawtucket, which is south of the city. Uh, right. But you also, if you're living in the south suburbs of Boston, that gives you a decentish access to the Cape League. Right. And on days when Josh Beckett's pitching Fenway Park in the AAA League. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, so what's, uh, uh, we could discuss that briefly. Is he just done forever? Well, his fastball velocity is down, I think, like a mile, mile and a half, and he seems like a guy who is one of those uh, pitchers who really needs that extra velocity for the separation between his fastball and his breaking ball and his changeup, and uh, his command has been bad, and so, you know, whether he's broken and can get it back, who knows, but 
it's pretty clear that Josh Beckett without his velocity is not as good as Josh Beckett with his velocity. Right. Are there any players notable uh, you can think of just offhand who uh, have lost velocity to no really ill effects? Well, before this year, we would have said Tim Lincecum, right? So, like, uh, Lincecum was the famous guy who lost a lot of velocity and was still really good. Um, Felix Hernandez this year, his velocity has been well down, uh, and he's still been really good. His velocity started to come back recently. Um, so it seems like it may not have been a permanent uh, affliction. But um, I think, you know, CeCe Sabathia is another guy whose velocity has been down. Um, and it's still pitched well, but now he's on the disabled list and says his elbow hurts. So uh, I think usually you don't want to see velocity loss. Um, but there are examples of guys who have, you know, dramatically transformed. Even Randy Johnson at the end of his career was throwing 90 instead of 98, and he was still pretty good. So, um, you know, I think we have seen evidence that some pitchers, especially ones with good breaking balls and good off-speed pitches and good command, can survive, you know, even significant drops in their velocity. Can you... Is there like a certain type of pitcher, do you think, that is more susceptible to uh, a, a, a deterioration in quality with a deterioration in fastball velocity, or a certain pitcher who maybe wouldn't be as affected by it? Uh, well, I think, you know, a pitcher who has a really good changeup uh, doesn't need his fastball as much as people think. I know there's a lot of talk about the value of the changeup coming from the separation between your fastball velocity and your changeup. I think most of that is there's some truth to it. I think it is more overblown than it is reality. Uh, I think a change of movement is really the key to that pitch, and a pitcher who can throw a really good uh, tailing, diving changeup, you know, almost like a split finger in some regards, and can throw it for strikes or can throw it at the corner of the strike zone and get hitters to chase, uh, they don't need to be able to throw 93. I mean, I think, you know, we can see pitchers who have that kind of devastating tailing, diving pitch that can get opposite-handed hitters out, give them a weapon even when they don't have their best fastball velocity. And generally, same-handed hitters, you want to attack them with breaking balls anyway, especially sliders. Uh, sliders and cutters are often devastating to same-handed batters. And so if you've got a good breaking ball and a good changeup, I think you can get hitters from both sides of the plate out even without a good fastball. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing I have noticed is uh, since Appleman, um, I guess, um, introduced the new PitchFX pages where we can look at pitches specifically on the different player pages, um, just looking through, uh, you know, uh, casually, just looking through some some of those pages, I have been uh, surprised by the s- swinging strike rates of changeups uh, for certain pitchers. They're they're higher than I thought, and higher especially relative to, um, you know, like a slider, for example, which I would consider like a real swing and miss pitch. Yeah, I think. So my guess is that that's mostly because. Uh, they don't get swung at quite as often. So I think they, I think, this is just a theory, changeups get thrown in counts where they're going to get stared at more often. So like a, a pitcher is probably more likely to throw a 2-0 changeup uh, than he is to throw a 2-0 slider. And he's probably more able to throw a changeup for a strike than he is for a ball. So I think that the total percentage of pitches is uh, higher for changeups than sliders. Sliders probably get... Uh, more swing and misses when they actually chase them out of the zone, but they get fewer of those uh, pitches on the corners that can go either way. Wait, I said higher swinging strike rates, I think, didn't I? Oh, I thought you just meant strike rate in general. Oh, no, I apologize. No, I mean, like, uh, oh. for example, Steven Strasburg's changeup has a higher swinging strike rate uh, than Craig Kimbrell's slider or curve or whatever it's called. Well, then, everything I just said is... Uh, you can ignore, and that's fascinating. You should write about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe. Also, uh, 
I think I posted this on Twitter last week, but Kelvin Herrera's changeup might be the best pitch in baseball that no one ever talks about. He has a 25% swinging strikeout rate, a swinging strike rate, and a 78% ground ball rate. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, could we? Is it? Would it be possible to calculate a sort of estimated, uh, like to do like an ERA, ERA estimator based off of the stats that inform FIP? Right. So, like, a, could you do like ground ball rate, uh, and then like zone rate? Or strike rate, maybe, and then uh, swing I, strike? I think Jack – didn't Jack Moore do some work on this last year? I feel like he did some work on whether – maybe it wasn't Jack. Maybe it was someone else. I feel like someone did some work on predicting ERA through play discipline stats. Yeah, well, we should look back at that. Anyway, maybe I'll uh, gift Kelvin Herrera's changeup. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it also helps that he throws 98. He actually is the hardest-throwing pitcher in baseball. He throws harder than Rolls Chapman, mm-hmm. uh, at least on average. I think Chapman's got a higher max velocity than Chapman, but Herrera sits at 98, 99, uh, and then he's got an 87-mile-an-hour diving change-up splitter thingy that hitters can't touch. Right. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Matt Harvey's change-up, but when he throws it well, he throws it very well. Yeah, I've only seen a few of his innings, so I don't think I've seen any of his good changeups. I've seen a good slider, but I don't think I've seen his good changeups yet. He's an interesting pitcher. I mean, his uh, his debut was brilliant, and he followed it up with a, uh, with a with an above average start, if not brilliant. Uh, his last two have not been as 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 excellent. Right. I mean, he's a guy who's got questionable command, right? So that's kind of what you expect is you know occasional brilliance with occasional inconsistency. Uh, can you have occasional inconsistency? Does that make any sense? <laughs> well, just right. Uh, it, it's that. Uh, well, I guess he's Max Scherzer, right? I mean, that's that's that sort of pitcher. Well, that would be really high. I don't think he's considered to be that kind of a prospect. If Matt Harvey turns into Max Scherzer, I think the Mets should be thrilled. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll uh, more on that as it develops. These, uh, uh, I wanted to get to this list. We, we mentioned the the, uh, the five, four, and three, and then also number one. Uh, number two for, for prospect finding, though, is, uh, at least I think, it, you know, uh, it seemed to me like the East Valley in Phoenix, like the Tempe or Scottsdale area. Right, yeah, there's obviously a ton of complex leagues down there, and, you know, the PCL has a couple teams there, and uh, I don't think there's any double-A teams there, though. Is there no, no, well, no, no, PCL is Tucson. Uh, there's yeah. no team near Phoenix, but you also have you have the Arizona League, the Arizona Rookie League, right. during the season, where you get a lot of, like, first-round high school-type picks. And then, um, and then, of course, the Arizona Fall League. I mean, it would probably be ranked just on the basis of the Arizona Fall League being there. Right, yeah, I mean, the Fall League is the more interesting league there. Right. And then, uh, and, and then of course, you have, uh, in the spring, you have not only um, spring training, where you get to see a lot of younger players, but also um, also uh, Pac-12 baseball right, right. there. Um, yeah. And, you know, that produces Arizona State. And this year's um, college uh, champions, uh, Arizona. And, you know, uh, as evidence of this, this area of hotbed and this Keith Law moved there. So, right. That. Yeah, he, yeah, and before that he lived, I think, on Cape Cod, right? Yeah, well, he lived in Massachusetts. And I, I think I remember someone asking him why he chose to move from Massachusetts to Arizona, and his response was, but you don't have to shovel sun, which I thought was a pretty good response. Yeah, shoveling is one part. The, uh, I mean, if you want to go by cultural advantages or disadvantages, uh, you know, there, there are definitely disadvantages living in Arizona too, like lack of shade. Right, yeah. and also I think the high price of dentures probably an issue. Dentures? Yeah. Dentures are more expensive in Phoenix. 
that was supposed to be a joke about the uh, average age of the person resigning in Arizona. There are old people, but I don't think Keith Law is dentures, does he? No, but if you needed dentures and you lived there, the demand is certainly higher. Yes, Although right. the supply is probably higher, too. I would the imagine Walmart and Arizona yeah. probably just stock more of them, yeah. Right. Now, listen, uh, uh, this is um, – some might describe this as a rambling uh, edition of the podcast. Others might describe it as a as a pleasantly – Ca- uh, leisurely one. Uh, uh, one thing I want to ask you about though, with your article from today, uh, here comes the Rays. With regard to the, the Tampa Bay Rays, they are uh, a wild card team, I guess the first in the wild card, and um, they've done it with uh, maybe a rotating cast of players? Uh, yeah, I think I was looking at their team page this morning. I noticed they only have three players who have played in 100 games this season, and they've played 112 or something. So they only have three players Carlos Pena, uh, Jeff Kepinger, no, Kepinger's not one, Sean Rodriguez, and maybe B.J. Upton, I don't remember who the third is. Anyway, they have three guys, like Desmond Jennings. So that, well, anyway, I don't remember exactly who it is. Carlos Pena and Sean Rodriguez are definitely two of them. Uh, but they do not have a, uh, a consistent lineup, for sure. They have a lot of guys who've played 70 or 80 games. Uh, they've mixed and matched, and they're, you know, if you look at their uh, players who have been most productive, it's full of guys like Jeff Kepinger and Ben Zobris and Alex Cobb and Fernando Rodney and Joel Peralta. Uh, they are not getting carried to the playoffs by Evan Longoria and David Price like a lot of people assume. Right. Well, David Price has certainly been good. Of course, Longoria was, has been out for most of the season. Right. I mean, that, and that was kind of the point of the last paragraph that I added on. It was like, you know, Price has been excellent. There's no doubt about it. Getting him with the first overall pick has been a boon to their franchise. And Longoria is usually awesome, so this is not a knock against him. But, uh, you know, Longoria has been out for most of the year, and Price is basically the only high first-round pick they have on their roster producing in a significant way. B.J. Upton's there, but he hasn't been very good. Uh, so, you know, I think when people look at the Rays and say, oh, well, they just tanked for a really long time, got a whole bunch of high picks. And, you know, the Giants are getting a lot of value out of Buster Posey, but no one labels that, uh, levels that criticism against them. Uh, there's a lot of teams out there who have one high draft pick who's turned out pretty well, uh, and that's basically what the Rays have done this year, is that it's one high draft pick and a cast of scrubs. Right, and of course, one of those high draft picks was Delman Young. Uh, yeah, all right. I mean, and there are, you know, they they turned uh, Edwin Jackson into Matt Joyce, and there are things that they've done in trades that have gotten, you know, where they've used uh, high highly valued prospects. I think Edwin Jackson they got for uh, Dewan Brazelton, I believe. I could be wrong about that. I'm just speculating wildly on a lot of things right now. But uh, I think that they've made a series of trades. Obviously, Delman Young helped them get. Uh, Max Scherzer, or, uh, see, yeah, you got me thinking about Scherzer. Uh, Matt Garza, um, who then they were able to flip. So, you know, they've made a series of trades based on those draft picks. You can't just say, oh, well, Price is the only one returning any kind of value. Um, but when you look at, like, Vobrist and Kepinger and Rodney, I mean, it's very clear that their roster is full of guys who they've mined out of nowhere. Right. And they also, they have a number of guys who, who seem to have not particularly exceptional body types. Like Jeff Kepinger, <laughs> if, if he were my insurance agent, I would not be shocked. Uh, yeah, I mean, Kevin Jones is one of those guys who's like really interesting in the sense that uh, it seems like every couple of years he has one of these really good offensive seasons because he's such a high-contact guy. You know, Kevin Jones makes contact more than almost anyone else in baseball, and he's got enough power that he's not just a slap-hitting single guy like a Juan Pierre or something. So, you know, it's gap power with a ton of contact, which is a pretty nice skill set to have offensively. Um, but the problem is he's just so bad defensively that most teams won't give him a chance because there's nowhere to play him. And so before Longoria came off the DL, 
uh, Kevinger was DHing frequently, uh, and you know he's not such a good hitter that you necessarily want him in your DH. So you know Kevinger's one of those guys. He's like he's got enough. He's good enough at two things to be a useful major league player, but he's bad enough at everything else to know for no one to want to give him a chance. And so it kind of takes a team like the Rays, who are desperate for offense, and say, you know what, you might not be able to field, but we need somebody who can put the bat on the ball. Right, and he uh, he does that a lot. And I guess yeah, if you make enough contact, it's hard to be very bad. Um, yeah, unless you just make a lot of contact to the pitcher or something. I mean, there are, you know, like there are super high contact hitters who are terrible, but they're not super high contact hitters with power who are terrible. That's a pretty good skill set. Right. Uh, yes, the race. Oh, and one thing before uh, before well, there's you know there's enough to talk about. Um, you you mentioned uh, you did a piece recently on Mike Fires and Marco Estrada. Yeah. Um, Sort of looking at uh, their similarities because they're both kind of soft tossers, uh, both have a good breaking pitch, and uh, in the long run, you know, I mean, both are putting up above average performances uh, in their time in the majors this year. And another player you mentioned, uh, sort of in passing in that, but who might, you know, who has a possibility to take a more central role, you know, if you had written that piece a week later, um, is Mark Rogers. Mark Rogers is, an, is a very interesting case because uh, he was a uh, first-round draft pick, like back in like uh, some crazy. It was like 2003 or something. It was a really long time ago, out yeah. of high school, I believe. Uh, has thrown in the mid 90s. Went through uh, a number of injuries, and now has come out on the other side. And he's, I think he's, he's averaging like 94 and a half miles per hour on his fastball through his first three starts. Yeah, I mean, Rogers is the exact opposite of Mike Fires. He's like a hard-throwing, high-velocity guy who you expect to get a lot of strikeouts and struggles with his command, at least in the minors. He's thrown strikes since he came up to the majors. Um, but he's a tough guy who's, you know, pitching really well for the Brewers right now, uh, and I think probably unexpectedly so. He wasn't that good in AAA. Uh, he's missed a lot of time due to suspensions. He's had uh, some off-the-field issues and uh, injury problems. Um, so I think with Rogers, you know, the question isn't the stuff. It's everything else and with fears the question isn't everything else it's the stuff so you know if you put the two of them together you'd have the best pitcher in baseball but instead the brewers have two of the most unique and interesting young pitchers in the sport uh who couldn't possibly be any less similar right yeah it's it, it sort of things are evolving strangely there uh, as far as that goes and uh this is the sort of bullet point section of the podcast but lastly uh, manny machado um he's adapting to the majors pretty well yeah, I, I noticed on Twitter this morning that he already has more home runs than James Loney this season, and he has as many as Michael Young. Right. Well, Michael Young is yeah, not, uh, not been excellent. Probably not the greatest DH uh, you could hope for at this point. But so Machado though uh, now has three home runs. Um, he was he was hitting excellently uh, during the the sort of end of his run at Double uh, A Bowie. And um, has started off doing that. Now you mentioned that you like the decision, even if uh, Machado it does not uh, end up being a, a significant boon. Um, why is that? And then if Machado does end up being a boon, how is that an advantage? To, uh, I mean, you know, obviously, how is that an advantage to the Orioles? Well, I think the piece that I wrote was trying to say we just don't really know what's going to happen over the next six weeks. I mean, at this point in the season, a lot of people have continued to write up the Orioles because of their negative run differential and because their Pythagorean expectations says they should be nine or ten wins worse than they are. But I guess the point that I've, I've made this point before, and I guess it's something I drive home every season, but it's, I'm reiterating again this year, 
is that, uh, you know, there's wins in the bank. They don't really matter how you get them. So we can look at the Orioles' record and say they might not be as good, they might not have played as well uh, as we would expect a team that is, you know, in the wild card hunt and 10 games over 500 to have played, but no one's going to come from the commissioner's office and repossess those wins and put them back in their place in the standings where they belong, theoretically. Uh, so what matters at this point is how well can the Orioles play over six weeks. And, you know, regardless of what you think about, you know, advanced metrics, the reality is that we don't, if we can't predict baseball over six weeks very well at all. Um, uh, you know, and especially for a team where we're saying they're a 480 team instead of a 530 team, we're really kind of picking nits a little bit. So to look at the Orioles' run differential and say, oh, well, they can't stay in the race because they've given up more runs than they've allowed or than they've scored, it's kind of missing the point. The Orioles are in the race, whether we like it or not. And they should do things that uh, reflect the fact that they're in the race. And they should, uh, you know, give their fans a reason to continue to come to Camden Yards and watch exciting baseball in September. And, you know, Manny Machado might not be ready to hit the major leagues, uh, but we don't know. I mean, you know, Miguel Cabrera came up as a 20-year-old, was pretty good for a Marlins team that ended up playing the World Series. Um, you know, Machado's not Cabrera as a hitter, but he's a pretty good hitting prospect. And if they catch lightning in a bottle for six weeks and Machado's an upgrade over Wilson Benevent and, you know, he helps them win one game and they make a playoff by one game or they even get into that wild card play-in game, that's going to have a significant impact on their franchise. I mean, the Orioles haven't had a winning season in 15 years. Um, their fan base needs something to root for. And so, you know, I think the cost of calling up Machado and giving him a shot is low and the potential reward if he turns into a good player and goes Bryce Harper on the league for six weeks is pretty high. And so... To me, I, I think that the likelihood, if we're just going to look at probabilities, is that Machado probably will fail, uh, even though he's got a risk of start. Um, he's probably not going to hit that well or be that much of an upgrade over Wilson Bedmitt. But that just because I don't think the goal for the Orioles should be to try and accurately predict their chances over the last six weeks. It should be to try and win. And Manny Machado gives them another lottery ticket towards, you know, outperforming expectations and ending up in the playoffs. Right now, the the mistake occurs, especially for a team that's uh, that's outperforming what you know what the peripherals might suggest is when is when the team itself believes that they were you know a ninety win team instead of an eighty five win team or something. Uh, I mean, I think the, the the mistake is when teams make decisions that are significantly harmful for the future of the franchise. So if the Orioles would have traded Machado and Bundy for a rental, that would have yeah. been a bad decision where they were overreacting to their uh, current situation and should have been informed by their run differential, calling up Manny Machado bought him trading him away. Right. Well, I just remember, uh, I think, was it the Mariners of like four years ago or something? Right. Yeah, uh, the 2008 Mariners, yeah. Right. They uh, they outperformed their Pythagorean, all manner of Pythagoreans, uh, by like 10 games. Um, and the next season was not kind to them as they regressed back to you know, their true talent levels. Right, and I think, you know, we can say that the Orioles are probably playing over their head and might not even play this well next year, but that more informs what they should do this offseason than it does what they should do right now. I mean, the fact is that the Orioles are in the playoff race, and I guess, for me, it gets a little frustrating to watch the historical analysts keep pointing to their Pythag record and saying, okay, well, this is a team that's just due to fall apart at any point, not understanding the wide variance around, or maybe they understand and they're just ignoring it, but the wide variance around um, what a standard deviation is for any baseball team over six weeks. So we just don't have good enough tools to say the Baltimore Orioles are going to play, you know, 400 baseball over the next six weeks and fall out of the race. They, you know, even if their true talent level is 460 or 470 instead of 530, uh, that puts their potential winning percentage anywhere between like four and 600. Like over six weeks of baseball, anything can happen. All right. 
You've uh, fulfilled your duties to the podcast this week, Cameron. Fantastic. Yeah. Anything else to add, though? Uh, uh, you know, I will put in a quick plug for Saber Seminar since I uh, was a part of it last weekend. Uh, I thought Dan Brooks and Chuck Corb did a really nice job. Uh, the event sold out, um, which I think speaks to the interest level in this kind of thing. There were some really good speakers, some really interesting research. Um, and overall, I thought they did a really nice job. So if you're in the Boston area next year, uh, when they put this thing on, I highly encourage you to attend. There you go. Very, um, yeah. I, I, yeah, in fact, I was in the Boston area, and unfortunately, I didn't attend. Um, although yeah, I got to go to... Uh, there, there was at one point where uh, Paul Swyden and Matt Clawson and Carson Castulli were all in Massachusetts at the time the favorite seminar was happening, and none of them were there. Yeah, right. So, uh, we were way all, to go. Uh, you're participating in other, other sort of things, friends and family-related activities. Right. Is it you and your vacations. Yeah, right. All right. That's uh, that's uh, Dave Cameron. Thanks, Dave. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.